This is the Zen Nova Scotia podcast with talks by Cone Franz. If you would like to support and be part of our community, you can start by visiting zennovascotia.com. We've never talked about the Lotus Sutra. We should. And if we were to do it right, I suppose we would start at the beginning. But I, uh, I have a favorite part, which I thought I would talk about tonight. It's just a really good story. Uh, this is the prodigal son story. There was a man, and he had a son. And when the son uh, came of age, he ran off, he left his father, and he went to have adventures in the world and to make his fortune. It wasn't a good departure. And it didn't go well for him. He kind of disappeared into the world, and he didn't make his fortune. He met a lot of hardships, and eventually... Uh, he found himself begging on the streets. And he never found his way home. He lived this way for decades. Meanwhile, his father went on to become uh, a very successful man in his community. He became wealthy and he became uh, respected. He took on a leadership position within the community. He was an advisor to important people. He had a big business. And he missed his son terribly. His son wandered all around the country and in the process kind of lost himself. So much so that when he found himself at the gates of his father's house, he didn't realize that he was in his own hometown, and he didn't realize the address. And he begged at the door. And his father, from inside the grounds, could see through the gate and recognized immediately, even though decades had passed, and his son was now a middle-aged man, he knew, that's my son. And he sent his people, and he said, go get that guy. (laughs) Get the guy at the gate. And they went to the gate, and, and they were approaching too quickly, and they were too excited, and the man, the son, got nervous. He thought he was going to be arrested or beaten, and he ran away. And so the father pulled back a little bit, and he said, okay. And he gathered his people again, and he said, I want you to find that man. He didn't say who he was. I want you to find that man and I want you to offer him a job. Just the most menial job you can. So they tracked him down and they offered him a job. And he was thrilled. He hadn't been offered respectable work in years. So he came to work on the grounds of his father's land. And even when he was looking directly at his father, he had no idea. And he worked, and he worked, and every once in a while his father would 
kind of make an excuse to come out and talk to a foreman or kind of be nearby. And he would observe that his son was working hard and then he would encourage the, uh, the people in middle management to promote him a little bit, to bump him up, you know, give him a better job. So he would move on to the next job. And he continued to work hard. And this went on for years. Years. I cannot, I cannot imagine the patience of this father. I would, I would do the big reveal in one day. But he doesn't. He waits. And he watches his son transform into someone with confidence and skills. After years of this uh, kind of play, his son, in his own right, becomes a respected person in the community and someone who is a leader, someone who is capable of running things. And when the father falls ill and sees that he's probably going to die, because at this point he's quite old, he gathers all of his people around him, plus the son. And he reveals for the first time, he says, you've been my son this whole time. I always knew. And everyone is shocked and the son is very happy. And that's the end of the story. The son is his father's heir and follows in his father's footsteps when his father passes away. It's nice. Traditionally, when this story is brought up, it's used as an example of skillful means. The father is the Buddha, and the son is a disciple, or, or perhaps more generally, the father is a teacher and the son is a student. The father recognizes that he can't just pull back the curtain and reveal everything at once. It's too much. The student can't handle that, according to this story. So you offer just a little bit. You you give a leg up. You meet that person where that person is. And slowly, you gain confidence. And slowly, you move on to more responsibility and more depth. And one day, you realize that something that you didn't think was yours has been yours the whole time. It was never not yours. It's a really lovely way of talking about that. The problem for us is that we don't do that. There's nothing behind the curtain. I've said this before. Maybe it's true, there's just no curtain. We do a big reveal on day one, and it's, this is it. 
Congratulations. And so for me, the story doesn't speak to me so much on that level. That's not the beauty of this, though it's a lovely way of talking about this. What I love about this story, where this story I think is so powerful, is in the fact that the father recognized his son immediately. He knew. He always knew. And, and what's critical here is that he did not recognize that someone had potential. That's a completely different kind of story. That kind of story does not serve us very well. He recognized who his son was. His son was always his son. So the story is kind of a, a, it's a front. Because at the end of the story, nothing has changed. Not at all. (laughs) This encapsulates very well my understanding of, well, first, if we frame it in terms of teacher and student. The teacher's job is to see the student. Not as a potential. Not as a kernel of something that might become more. But in a way that goes beyond personal stories. And by extension, if that's what the teacher is supposed to do with the student, then that's what we're supposed to do with everybody. In Zen, we don't talk very much about cultivation. But if we're cultivating something, we might say that we're cultivating that. We're cultivating the view in which what we see and who we see is complete, as is. That's a starting point. It's a hard starting point. Made harder by the fact that most of us probably can't look in the mirror and do this same thing. We all imagine that we're a work in progress. Or... If we're tired of being a work in progress, maybe we imagine that we're already cooked and we're done. (laughs) And this is just who I am. I've talked many times about our basic commonality. That when we recognize in ourselves our own tendencies, when we recognize our own talents for uh, spinning stories, and we recognize our own ability to 
to keep that story very small, then we can recognize that ability in others. And we can recognize that other people have the same difficulties we do. We can recognize that the person on the street looks at herself in the mirror and feels just as dissatisfied as we do. And as I think I said last week, we can realize that every single person we meet on the street is facing his or her own death. And that that's not easier for anyone else. And in doing that, we start to establish a place where we meet. The place where you and I are exactly the same. where our defining traits are exactly the same. And so we can enter into a conversation that is the same as when you meet someone who has exactly the same hobby as you. (laughs) right? And you don't have to start at the beginning. And you don't have to explain all the parts. Because that person has been doing the same thing you've been doing. That person plays the same instrument as you. That person has the same favorite movies as you, whatever it is. That conversation begins deep into your experience. When you recognize that your partner or your friend or your child or the person who is serving you coffee is already deep into that conversation with you. Everything that follows from that is different. Suddenly it's, it's like we're all in the same club. We have secret handshakes, right? The person hands you a coffee and you look her in the eye and you think, yeah, you're going to die too. And she looks at you and she thinks, what does he see? <laughs> And you walk away, because you know. I love this story for that, for that moment. And I bring it up tonight because of things that have been in my mind. One, because of all the talk on the news about refugees. And how that story points to our desperate need to make people two-dimensional. We want people to be just this. Because we can understand that. If we make ourselves vulnerable enough to allow that person to be as hurt and as profound and as complicated as we are, 
then suddenly we face all sorts of difficulties that we may not want. And we're experts at resisting. The other less uh, weighty reason is because we, uh, we're coming up on our first beginner's night next week. And maybe no one will come. But whoever does come, our job is to look at that person as someone who has been there here the whole time. To see with those eyes And when we do that, I think it's felt. I think it's understood. I'm not sure there's much more to it. I'll stop there. For more information about Zen, our practice, and how you can support and take part in our community, please visit zennovascotia.com.